Hi there, and welcome to another episode of West Obsessed, where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues critical to the health of the American West. I'm Brian Calvert, the managing editor of High Country News, broadcasting from the studios of our partner KVNF in Peonia, Colorado. Every year around this time, we put together a special travel issue. We do this because in a typical high country news, we mostly focus on the issues that shape the American West. Those are things like landscape, water, people, and wildlife. In those stories, we try our best to serve as guides, bringing our readers useful analysis and insight. But in the travel issue, we take a different tack. We imagine the region as though we were new to it, and in doing that, we see it with fresh eyes. So those are some of my favorite stories, and I'm joined in the studio today by two of our writers, Maya Kapoor and Anna Smith, who both contributed to the issue. Uh, welcome, Maya. Hi. And <laughs> welcome, Anna. Hello. Maya, you wrote about a visit a few years ago to see a raptor show, and Anna, you wrote about a return to the timber country of your youth. Um, Maya, let's just start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum and its raptor free flight show? Sure. The Arizona Sonora Desert Museum is located west of Tucson, and it does a couple different things. Uh, they have what's basically a zoo that's open to the public where animals that are native to the region are displayed in um, setups that are designed to look like the Sonoran Desert and the habitats that they come from. They also do research on the ecology of the Sonoran Desert. So they've got a couple different themes and missions. They also have an aquarium that um, shows organisms from the desert to the sea. And the part that I went to see was their free flight, which is birds that are native to the region that do educational shows for visitors during the winter when it's not too hot for them to fly. And I was invited to go behind the scenes uh, by the trainers to meet one of the birds after the show. You don't like aquariums? I don't. (laughs) <laughs> you don't? <laughs> Why did you go there? Why did you go to the free flight instead of the aquariums? Oh, you know what? It was totally <laughs> an expedition of opportunity. I was invited to go, so I went. <laughs> okay. You don't have like a preference of nope. birds over fish? Not at all. <laughs> I I went to the, the bird show <laughs> because, um, you know, I, I sent out an email to uh, somebody I knew who was also a writer who'd had an opportunity to... Um, do a writing in residence program there and he put me in touch with somebody who put me in touch with a trainer but I had um, in the past when I was in first in high school and then in college um, volunteered at a wild bird center where I grew up in New Jersey so um, I was I was pretty excited to get to see some wild birds uh, more recently what's the wildest bird in New Jersey the wildest bird in New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. um, there's actually quite a few different species of wild birds in New Jersey. I'm not really sure how to answer that. Mm. Just, uh, I don't really think of wild birds when I think of New Jersey. Hmm. Well, the Great Swamp National Wildlife Refuge is one of the first wilderness areas in the country, and that's in New Jersey. Huh. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. All right. Well, <laughs> so I, I guess I wanted you to talk a little bit about... Um, uh, the, there was a very special bird in your story. Her name is Hyla. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could talk about her and uh, what it was like to meet her. 
Sure. So one of the birds that I saw during free flight that actually didn't fly was Hyla. And so um, I got to meet her after the show and she didn't fly because uh, she's a frigginous hawks and it was a windy day and it's pretty hard for them to uh, to kind of get up in the air on really windy days um, because they coast pretty high. And um, so she chose not to fly during the show and the trainers don't make the birds do anything. Um, so I... Sh- She's um I was thinking about it actually this morning. She's probably close to 17 now. Um this was a couple of years ago, so she was about um probably 14 or 15 when I met her and um she was born in Montana and she was found by um I'm not actually sure who found her, but the person who brought her to a rescue center in Montana was a falconer. And she and her sibling, who was a male frigginous hawk, um, probably fell out of their nest and were rescued. And she's been at um, the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum pretty much her whole life. And um, she does free flights during the winter, and she uh, hangs out at the Muse, which is where the birds live during the summer when she's not involved with educational shows. Oh, yeah. And a Muse is a what? M-E-W-S, so, Muse? Uh, so that's M-E-W-S. It's, uh, it comes from a French word, um, and that is where raptors in captivity uh, are kept by falconers when they're molting, which is when their feathers are changing, and it's just sort of where they kind of hang out and relax. But for the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum, that's where they keep their education birds, and they, they have their own... Uh, aviary spaces that are big enough for them to fly around in and have some privacy and kind of um, relax and be out of the public eye. So she has her own aviary and it's um, closed to the public, but I was able to go see it and learn about how she's taken care of back there. And so for the public, just describe what a free flight show is. So the free flight show is basically the handlers bring the birds to a, a section of Sonoran Desert. So the, um, as I mentioned, the the animals kept in captivity at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum. Um, their enclosures are designed to look like Sonoran Desert. And then if you're a visitor, you're following trails through actual Sonoran Desert to get to their enclosures. And so the free flight area is a section of Sonoran Desert. So that for people who haven't been to the Sonoran Desert, that's like uh, saguaro cactus and um, creosote bush and mesquite and um, kind of rolling hills. And the birds are brought out one by one and um, they're on the arms of their trainers and they are not tethered. They're not wearing eye covers or anything. And um, they fly. And what really brings them back to their handlers is the treats that they're given. <laughs> so um, they do various things. They'll perch um, on plants or fly up over the visitors. And um, it's a chance for the volunteer docents to talk to the visitors about the birds, about their ecology, their life history, um, where they live in the wild, kind of what's going on with the species as the visitors are watching, um, whether it's a frigginous hawk or a great horned owl or a chihuahuan raven, and talk to them about, you know, just kind of give people a chance to hear about a bird and then actually see it move in a landscape and interact with it that way. The shows are really popular People are kind of so the people are actually enclosed during the shows. Uh, there's barricades up that 
you don't go past. And that's because the birds really think of that space as their own territory. And um, if you were to go in their territory, they'd be very upset. <laughs> so um, the birds fly around, they go back to their trainers for treats, and then after the show's over, they're carried back to the muse. And the trainers figured out that um, they used to carry the birds on their arms, but the birds are actually a lot calmer and more comfortable if they're carried in uh, animal carriers, which are basically just like what you might carry your pet dog in, small enough for a person to carry, not drag, but and then modified so it has like a perch inside it. Um, that the bird can sit on. And so that's what they use to carry the birds to and from the muse. Um, so the show's really designed for the birds to be as comfortable as possible. And Once, there, there's a kind of a, the interesting part about your story is I, it's like when you go in there, it's sort of like, okay, the top of your head yep. down to the bottom of the feet is yours. Right. And that's it. And everything else is the birds. That's right. And at one point, um, I was wondering about... You know, does Hyla, the Phrygianus hawk um, that I kind of met, does she think of herself as a bird? Like, what what does she think of herself as? Because she's always been around people. She was hand raised by people, and I don't really know what it's like to be in the mind of a Phrygianus hawk. I don't know if she thinks of herself at all, but. Um, you know, part of part of this whole exercise with keeping people in an enclosed space is that as far as she thinks of herself, um, she identifies with humans. And so, uh, and so, you know, if a person did wander into her space, she, she would consider them trespassing. And also when, when she takes off, which happens once in a while, she does go on a long flight. She always goes to the same place, which is this little hill called Brown Mountain. That's a few miles. It's about four miles away. And then she always waits in the same place, and she hangs out there until uh, a trainer comes and gets her in a truck, and then she goes home with them. <laughs> Why? What is it about that place? Do they know? Um, uh, nobody actually told, answered that for me. Um, I think she just likes to stretch her wings once in a while, and if the if the weather's right and the wind's right, um, she's a soaring bird. She's a budio, and it just feels good to soar. So I think that's just kind of what she does once in a while. It doesn't happen very often. A buteo is a soaring bird? Um, yeah, that's her genus, B-U-T-E-O. Huh. It's a kind of soaring hawk. So yeah. Did she act differently than other kinds of hawks in her species? Well, um, phrygianus hawks are not known for being the easiest birds to handle. Um, they are popular among falconers, but falconers who are pretty adept at handling birds. So um, it's not common to have them in free flight type uh, events. So I think she's unusual in that sense. And we, you know, we had a photographer go there and take pictures of Hyla and she has like a personality. She looks like, um, you know, when your dog is looking at you or something like that, she has like expressions. It seems like. Well, I was careful in the essay to not say that I didn't want to attribute her behavior to a personality because I think um, I think it's I'm not saying she doesn't have a personality. Uh, I think it's it's easy to ignore animals' personalities, but I also think it's easy to ignore evolution when you're talking about animal behavior. And so I didn't I don't know enough about I'm not an ornithologist and I'm not um, a scientist in animal behavior, and I um, I don't know with. Hyla, where her behavior is due to 
evolution and where it's due to her as an individual. So I I didn't try to ascribe that. Yeah, that's what I really like about your essay is that just by going to this place and standing with these birds in the way that they have it set up, you you kind of have to ask some questions about, yeah, like, does this bird think of itself as a bird or do, does it think of itself at all? Right. Or, or you know, obviously it's not considering humans a danger or a predator. It's like something else. It's a part of that community in a way. Um at, you know, the, each bird is like, no, this is my area kind of thing. So and I just thought that was a very interesting part of your essay where you have to think about those things. But you had a, a chance to think about that a lot because you've, you worked at a bird center. Right? Yeah, um, that's true. How is it sort of different from when you worked there to now? There was kind of an arc for me. I first found out about um, this wild bird rehabilitation center uh, close to where I grew up, um, when I was in high school, we had to write essays for my English class about what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I was about 15, and I found this um, rehabilitation center. And I was trying to remember how I found it, because this was before Google existed. <laughs> like, the internet was just starting. I was like, how did you find places back then? Um, and I must have found it in the Yellow Pages. It's all I came up with. Oh, really? <laughs> I really don't know. But um, I went from being really sort of in love with the idea of saving animals to kind well, of... Wait, do- yeah, what did you put in your essay that you wanted to be when you grew up? Uh, I wanted to work in wild animal rehabilitation. That's what I said. And then um, I did work there after college. Um, and Well, I volunteered there in college, and then I worked there after college and um, was kind of jaded by that experience a little bit and um, questioning what it meant to save, you know, individual animals when that wasn't stopping the things that were hurting them. Um, And then I went to this opposite extreme of um, getting really cynical about how people interacted with nature and um, the right way to think about wildness and then I think I swung back and I tried to show that in this essay to really just appreciating all the different ways to think about wildness and all the different ways to try to interact with or find your own path to um, appreciating wildness and so I think it's been kind of a up and down sort of conversation in my head right there's a a sense in the essay that um at some point in time you would have sort of maybe looked a little bit condescendingly toward this experience with these people is that safe to say i think so yeah i think i would have um and i think i needed to i needed to really kind of check myself and ask myself how i had learned to appreciate um nature and what experiences i'd had and and then value those experiences and then other people having those experiences um so yeah we kind of had to grow up a little i guess (laughs) do you think is it sort of different than a zoo for you for for me like i think when i go to a zoo i mean i I don't go anymore because i I really just don't like zoos and is this a different kind of experience from a zoo because it's sort of existing in a uh, like is, a museum space, I guess, but is what the Raptor Free Flight, for example. Well, the Arizona Snowy Desert Museum is a zoo. Uh-huh. Um, the animals that are there, as far as I know, um, tend to be rescue animals, but I'm not sure about that. But um, they're native to the area that they're in. Um, I do think that there's 
you know, I get really sad when I go to zoos too. Um, and that's still something I grapple with, but I can't, um, and I really don't. I mean, I love going to the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum because the species there, I believe, are rescue species or organisms and because they're native to the region. And I think it's got a huge educational component and it's got a big um, research component. But I, I, first of all, I don't think every place that does animal shows is the same, right? Like I think mm-hmm. SeaWorld is probably different from the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum. Um, so I can't put them all in the same category. Um, and I think that I think, but I also think that I can't make assumptions about every person's experience in every place, you know, so. Well, that's reasonable. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just, I feel like, um, you know, yeah, I guess maybe there are like right ways to do this kind of thing. And, you know, one of the reasons we published this essay was that it just felt like there's a lot happening in that interaction. And it's forcing people to have these same questions about their relationship to other wild creatures, even if it's, you know, can be a little bit uncomfortable, I guess, to sort of see things in a kind of captivity, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I don't and I don't think by the end of the essay that I'm saying and, you know, this is the right or the wrong way to do it. Like, I I still have those questions. But I think um, I think especially in places that are kind of the the meeting places of wilds and, and sort of built places um, that rather than telling people what they're doing wrong, it's like helpful to find what people are doing right. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've been trying to do more of. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, yeah, I think that's good. And I think, um, you know, there are a lot of places in the West where these kind of questions play out. So it's always kind of right in our wheelhouse. And so <laughs> no plans to become a falconer? <laughs> no. <laughs> nope. That's, Anna, what about you? Um, no. Uh, if you're just joining us, you're listening to West Obsessed, where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues critical to the health of the American West. I'm Brian Calvert, the managing editor of High Country News, and I'm here with writers Maya Kapoor and Anna Smith. Uh, today we're talking about a kind of quintessential piece of the West, which are those weird corners that you can travel to to kind of ask these sort of questions that you ask about, you know, does a bird know it's a bird? Uh, and, uh, you know, we we put together these stories that help us um, put the West into deeper context. And so it's it's a really fun issue that we have. There's probably six or seven stories like this in there. Um, but, you know, there's amazing things out there, obviously, but we have uh, places and people who need to make a living as well. And that's, you know, always something that High Country News uh, is concerned with. So um, sometimes those things don't exactly square. Um, so, Anna, you had a kind of different story or different experience to tell because um, you didn't really go to a new place, but like more of an old haunt. Um, I thought you could tell us a little bit about Valley of the Giants and how that place fits into your youth. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Oregon in the Willamette Valley uh, near the coastal range where a lot of logging has gone on in the past. I'm sure that a lot of readers and listeners of iCountry News are really familiar with the timber issues that Oregon has and the history that it has there. So I grew up in Dallas, Oregon, which is a timber town, and a mill closed there in 2009 uh, when I was in high school still. And nearby was this place called Valley of the Giants, which is about 50 acres of old growth forest. And it's BLM land, Bureau of Land Management. And it's surrounded by a bunch of timberland um, that's been harvested over the years. And so in those areas, uh, 
in those logging roads, I guess, we would just kind of hang out there when we were in high school and <laughs> it wasn't very glamorous. Like there were just these gravel roads that we would drive down just to uh, have something to do. Just kind of, you know, I think a lot of people growing up in especially small towns, this is probably true everywhere though, they just kind of explore their surroundings. And so our surroundings happen to be logging country. Well, what is Valley of the Giants? I mean, what what are the giants? Yeah. So that's a Great question, Brian. <laughs> so, because giant... as you know, I grew up in Wyoming uh-huh. and all we have out there is sagebrush. So it's really hard for me to kind of imagine sometimes like um, places like the Pacific Northwest and, and in the context of people growing up. But yeah. Yeah, it's kind of weird. So I mean, yeah. what are the giants? So the giants are uh, these hundreds of year old Douglas firs and western hemlocks mostly. And they're just these huge trees that if you if you stand next to it, it just makes you feel tiny. Like it's a similar feeling to if you go to the Grand Canyon or something like that. Um, it just kind of reminds you of your smallness. And um, yeah, they're large enough where you would need about, and I say this in the essay, about five people probably to um, link arms and um, surround the base of it. Yeah, so it's just a, this really concentrated cluster of old growth. In your essay, you talk about a town that's near the Valley of the Giants, and that, that town is Valsets. So mm-hmm. could you tell us about that? Yeah. So Valsets uh, was established in 1920, and it was owned and operated by a lumber company. And uh, lots of families lived out there, so it was very much an operating town. It had its own newspaper. It had a grocery store. And their sole purpose out there was to log the coastal range. And so that town existed uh, up until 1984, which is when the company decided that it wasn't making enough money. It decided to uh, force the residents out. And so they kind of scattered to areas uh, near Dallas, basically Fall City and Monmouth and uh, places like that. And um, they drained the mill pond, they burned down the mill, and basically totally erased any trace of it. And so when you go there now... There's nothing there. And as far as when I was living in Dallas, there was never anything there. So, Does it look different from all the places around it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can tell. Um, I mean, there's some, like, cement structures, but it doesn't really – you don't really know where they – what they were for, how old they are. Um, it's like and, a lost city in the jungle. Uh, <laughs> that might be, like – like too cool sounding for this. It's mostly just like really wet and like full of gravel and just like a soggy, dumpy, lost city in the jungle. Y- yeah, that's more accurate. <laughs> but also, uh, to get the road to go to like the actual town itself has been um, cut off. Like you can't just go up into you know where there were other houses and stuff like that. And so you're really only looking from the road. But there's no sign that says, you know, this used to be the town of all sets or anything like that. So you have this sort of old town and then you have this um, one little patch of land that's in this sort of timbered cut country. Uh, and that's like kind of like the perfect place to hang out, I guess, for teenagers trying, yeah. to, trying to get out of town. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just like an escape, right? So when you're a teenager and you're growing up in a tiny town that has lost its sense of purpose because the mill closed down, like, what are you going to do? You're going to go look for these kinds of places where you can just kind of get you know a new sense of yourself and so we found that at valley of the giants it was just did you guys sit around and say we need a new sense of ourselves let's go find this place yeah we were like hmm (laughs) you know what i need today i need a new sense of myself (laughs) 
Um, but really going, oh, I should add that go, trying to get to Valley of the Giants is really hard. Like if you just tried to say, oh, I'll just uh, go down these logging roads and try to find it. Like that's not going to work. Um, I think that they've gotten better about it in recent years and they've put up those little like uh, markers that say VOG on it. But um, it's notoriously hard to find. And then it's also um, closed a lot during fire season and the gate will just be closed. And so you don't really know if you're going to. It's not a surefire thing, basically. So it's sort of like this little secret place that, like, kind of locals know to get to in a Mm -hmm. way, but it still manages public land. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can call, like, the BLM office in Salem and say, hey, is it open? How do I get there? And stuff like that. Always helpful. Well, tell us a little bit about what what you guys would get up to then. You would head out to Valley of the Giants, and what's it like there? I guess, I mean, Valley of the Giants itself, in terms of, like, the hanging out and the camping and the drinking and stuff like that that was all not in valley of the giants itself because you can't camp there so it would always be kind of like a day-long thing so you just i mean we were joking about earlier about um you know finding ourselves or whatever but really like when you go there there's not much to do other than look at these giant things and kind of be in awe um there's no amenities or anything like that and uh the kiosk there looks like it was probably put there in like the 80s and never looked at again so i'm just fascinated by this place uh and so it's like it's a loop trail basically you can you can sort of like walk through it Uh uh-huh yeah it's super short too it's only like a mile something and it's really easy terrain you just kind of wander around on these not very well maintained trails um that have a lot of squishy needles and stuff and uh, there's a lot of really great flora and fauna. It's just moss and lichen everywhere, just like dripping from the branches because there's it gets like 180 inches of rain every year. And so it's so moist, like everything's just damp. Um, and so it's basically a rainforest, I guess. And uh, yeah, there's marbled murrelets nest there. And uh, those are those big birds that look like potatoes. <laughs> I don't think they're very they big. Like flying potatoes. Oh, oh. really? I think like oh I mean they're just I guess they're little but little potatoes yeah they they're like little flying potatoes yeah I can see that description <laughs> <laughs> so anyways but they nest really high in the yeah and they they only uh, they fly in from the ocean and they only um, nest in old growth and then in the essay we sort of talk about understanding your the people that you grew up with in the the town that you grew up in in a, in a different way so growing up in Dallas it's a really conservative town. And uh, a lot of the surrounding area is too. And myself and my friends included were generally from more liberal families and we were kind of the odd ones out. And I think I think that there's probably a large number of people out there who have had similar experiences in high school. To some degree, it's just you're kind of hearing what your parents are saying and kind of parroting that. And I'm sure that a lot of the other kids were too. But basically, we, we were the ones that were... Uh, we're often looking at our peers as kind of backwards or not forward thinking. And that made itself apparent with social issues and, you know, even like the kind of trucks that people would drive and things like that. Like high school is such a weird time. And um, I guess the connection that I drew from that to these timber economies are a lot of these kids and their parents were affected by the mill closure And so it makes sense to me now that those kind of events would drive a sort of anger towards um, 
these things that I thought were forward and forward thinking and only good could come from, from them, you know. Um, but them and their parents saw it as part of a changing world. And this was also during the recession, which uh, drove a lot of anger and resentment and um, kind of finger pointing in my town. And so it was all sort of tied up together, I suppose. And I think we're kind of getting a sense of that coming around again, you know, like watching the news lately, this sort of battles about uh, public land and economies. It's kind of a little bit more in oil and gas and coal now. Um, and what I thought was interesting about your essay was that um, you really kind of take a step back and say, like, okay, so, yeah, as a kid, we, we didn't really like some of our um, kids that we went to high school with or whatever. And now you kind of can understand where some of that resentment's coming from because their economy's disappearing. And, and there's a really nice turn in the essay where you talk about the people are just as open to the whims of a changing world as those trees were. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting kind of thing to keep in mind as we're going forward. I think there's going to be a lot of environmental debates coming up uh, in in politics and in local politics. Um, obviously, here in Paonia, we have... Uh, coal economies that are uh, on the rocks and um, oil and gas all around and, and big questions about oil and gas and fracking. Um, but what I thought was also interesting was that there's this it's just this patch of land that's the sort of byproduct of the way the West, it, it's all over the place. Um, you have these little patches of public land, they're like inholdings around, and all around that's this private stuff. And somebody at the BLM at some point was like, hey, we should... Uh, we should save this place and like make a trail through it, you know. And they sort of developed it in a way that some people can experience it, even if it's a, a bit of a sort of local, I don't know, pocket or secret. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's just this place that where people who want to can go and ask these questions. It's not that oh, we have to keep everything pristine and perfect, but you know, and same with the Raptor Center. You just we need places where people can go ask these kinds of questions. And I don't think it's like <laughs> being an enemy of the state. I don't think you're being an enemy of the state if you're saying like, oh, well, we should have some of these things. Let's like keep some of them around mm-hmm. um, because look what happens. The timber company leaves. The economics don't work anymore um, because of policy or markets. And they just run the people out of town and burn it down. And what's left there? Not not giants, not hundreds of years old trees anymore. So I thought that was a really important aspect of your essay. I think that one thing, too, that uh, kind of ties in with what Maya was saying is that, um, you know, the people who go to Valley of the Giants, a lot of times they are locals, but a lot of the locals are people who are loggers or, um, you know, work in construction or they're people like me who grew up in the area and now are coming back. And so it's sort of um, just all these different people from all these different backgrounds experiencing the same place. And so, you know, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, too, that we don't tell people how to experience these places, but that we just have them there for the opportunity to experience. Yeah. And I think these are like huge questions going forward for like the human race in general. What is our relationship to this place? What is my relationship to this other person? And what is my relationship to this other creature? And, you know, if there's anything we do in the pages of High Country News, it's like try to figure out where those questions can be asked. Um That's all we have time for today. Uh, Thank you, Maya. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Thanks. If you, the listener, want to read more of our travel stories, you can do so at hcn.org. If you want to continue this conversation online, you can go to kvnf.org. For West Obsessed, I'm Brian Calvert. And as always, thanks for listening. (laughs) 